Hello. Hi. Welcome to Movie Culture. Today, we are talking about Up. Up was released in 2009 and is Pixar's 10th feature film. The movie was written and directed by Pete Docter and was the first Pixar movie nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. If it's been a minute since you've seen this movie, here is the synopsis. If you have seen it, we'll put timestamps in the show notes so you can skip to the discussion. The movie begins with young Carl Fredrickson meeting Ellie and dreaming of relocating to Paradise Falls to explore with their idol, Charles Muntz. They save up, but in a montage, we see their life take a different, quieter path until Ellie passes and Carl is left alone, now an old man. Over the years, the city has grown around Carl and Ellie's house, and developers try to displace Carl. But Carl escapes by releasing thousands of balloons and turning his house into an airship. Unbeknownst to Carl, a young wilderness explorer named Russell has accidentally stowed away, and after a perilous flight through the sky, Carl and Russell land near the falls. With the house still floating, they decide to walk the rest of the way. On their journey, they meet a tall, colorful bird who Russell names Kevin, and a dog, Doug, with a collar that lets him speak. Doug brings the pair to his owner, Muntz, who is searching for the tall bird. Muntz becomes hostile when he finds that Carl and Russell are protecting Kevin, and he lights a fire below the house, forcing Carl to choose between saving the house and saving Kevin. Carl chooses the house and his lifetime of memories with Ellie, and drags the house to the falls while Muntz kidnaps Kevin. Alone, Russell attempts to rescue Kevin, and after realizing what is truly important, Carl follows. In a high-flying chase, Carl and Russell defeat Muntz and save Kevin, but afterwards, the house falls away through the clouds. Carl returns to the city, newly satisfied with his connection with Russell, and in the closing moments, we see that the house, once again, has come to rest beside the falls. So, Tay, what did you think? I really liked this. It yeah. made me cry. <laughs> <laughs> when I watched this for the first time, I was in high school, and I watched this infamous montage mm -hmm. without feeling anything. Oh, <laughs> Cold-blooded. It's like soulless teenager. <laughs> now I watch it and I am just sobbing. It is a gutting opening 10 minutes. And of course, it, like everyone says that the first 10 minutes of Up are just absolutely stunning. And they're right. It's beautiful. Yeah. Like potentially best eight minutes of any movie. I feel that way about the whole first 20 minutes. And we can talk about that. I think the rest of the movie is really good. But I kind of feel like if they cut it off at the 11 minute mark or the 22 minute mark, it would just be like one of the great shorts, if not the defining piece of short media. And I like that they turned into a feature length movie. We all saw it in movie theaters. Great. Good for Pixar. But like, damn, man, those first 10, 20 minutes. Whoa. Yeah, that first act is just so solid. Okay, so tell me about this opening montage. Carl, meet Ellie as kids, bond, and then them spend their lives together. The ups, the downs, their their love, but their inability to have children. 
they age wonderfully and then Ellie gets sick. I want you to tell me about what you saw in this opening 10 minutes. Okay, well, first of all, I feel like I was maybe being a montage. I was letting off the other movies. I was letting the montage off the hook. And I was like, you know, maybe I just don't like montages. Maybe they're just not for me because I just Mm -hmm. like dialogue. No, no. (laughs) This is how to do a montage. And all the other montages pale in comparison. Yeah, obviously. I mean, this is the best of all time. You can't compare a rat learning how to cook to the story of two people sharing a life together. Okay, the rat didn't learn to cook. I was saying that that would have been a good montage. (laughs) Okay, I went back and I rewatched this montage a few times because obviously I wanted to understand this magic that they have performed. It feels a little bit like if I get into it, it's somewhat like trying to explain why a joke is funny and I'll just fall totally flat Mm -hmm. because we all know that this montage is brilliant and no one needs me to explain why. But I will just highlight a few things that I think are really smart about it. So they managed to make you feel like you have watched a full life in these eight minutes. And I think part of that is that They really only show a limited amount of settings and actions. Hmm. You're kind of seeing them do the same things over and over again. Okay. But each time they do it, it has a new meaning attached to it. They climb the same hill twice. They look at the clouds and see what the clouds look like. They paint. And and painting becomes a quick hand in this montage to show what their dreams are. Mm -hmm. First, you see them painting the mailbox because their dream as newlyweds is their new home together. And then they are painting a nursery because that's their new dream to have a child and that doesn't work out. And then Ellie is painting this picture of Paradise Falls with the house on it. And that becomes their next dream. Mm -hmm. So this montage really familiarizes us pretty instantly with this couple's life and how to understand this couple. And I think that the most brilliant and heartbreaking thing they do is they do a lot of reversals. This is most poignant with Ellie's death because... You mentioned the picnic scene. So they have two picnics. The first picnic, Ellie's running up the hill and Carl is the one who can't keep up and he's kind of stumbling as he's trying to get up the hill. Mm -hmm. And then the second time is when we really realize that Ellie's about to die. Carl is ahead of Ellie because he's just bought tickets. He's going to surprise her. He's going to finally give her her dream and she can't get up the hill and she's the one who falls this time and he has to run to help her up. Mm-hmm. It's also during sunset instead of the first time, which is the middle of the day. And then even more heartbreakingly, the next visual that we see is Ellie in the hospital. And Carl sends her the balloon like she used to send to him. And she pushes the adventure book towards him. And that is what we see Carl do for her when she is grieving the loss of their child. And when he gives her that book, it makes her feel better. It makes her feel like they still have a future. So to see Ellie give that to Carl when he is grieving her, it just breaks us. It is amazing. You can have such an emotional attachment and not notice any of those things. I did not rewatch the montage a few times, but still felt the same way about how gutting it is and how 
immediately connected you feel to them and how you do feel like you have watched their entire lives. And that was without noticing anything that you just mentioned. And that is such an incredible peek behind the curtain of this absolute masterclass of storytelling. It really is. It is masterful. Mm -hmm. And of course, the score is incredible. And I know that you have thoughts about that. I mean, it's just the quintessential Pixar score. They won best score at the Oscars for it. It's incredible. And it has become shorthand in a way for Pixar itself. To me, the up score is as essential to Pixar as the squeaky lamp. It is masterful. It's absolutely outstanding. Who wrote this score? Michael Giacchino, who has scored a few of Pete Docter and Brad Bird's Pixar movies, including The Incredibles, Ratatouille, Up, Inside Out, Coco, and The Incredibles 2. Wow. He's really excellent, and he is at the absolute top of his field in Up. Yeah. Round of applause. Round of applause for everyone that worked on this movie, really. It's beautiful in so many ways. I want to talk, though, about the next 10 minutes, because everyone talks about the first 10 minutes, right, up until Ellie's death and Carl now confronting his own loneliness. But I actually think the next 10 minutes are less gutting, but equally beautiful, because they finish this story. Because in the next 10 minutes, Carl comes to terms with Ellie's death. He starts living without her, and people want to get rid of him, get him out of his house. People are trying to send him to a retirement home. It shows you how much he's lost without her. And we have seen Carl be joyful and be playful, but also be uh, shy and a little obstinate. In the montage, we see that. And without Ellie, that really comes out. And he turns into who I remember Carl being when Mm -hmm. I saw this movie 15 years ago, which is a stubborn, grumpy old man. He bops someone on the head with his cane. He has to go to court. I mean, that part is so beautiful because it shows just how much grief changes him. And you can see the moment when he bops that person with his cane and you can see his reaction of, oh my God, what have I become? Exactly. And I didn't pick up on that a decade ago, Mm -hmm. but- It's so clear now to me watching it back because he is so overcome with who he is and how much he misses her and how much he relies on her and holds on to her. And he's holding on to his house because his house represents her, even though there's so much change around him. At some point, he decides that he's not going to take this. He's not going to just let his story be ended for him. He sees the adventure book. And he decides to go on their adventure and to honor her in that way. And the morning that he's supposed to go to the retirement home, he releases the balloons, he takes off, and he looks at the picture of her with the adventure goggles, and he looks out at the horizon. And to me, the movie could have ended there, because that is him coming to terms with that grief and working through it, and deciding on love and life after death. And that is so beautiful. It's such a beautiful sentiment, and it's such a beautiful sequence. Mm -hmm. And I, I just absolutely adored it. Yeah. And I mean, the reversals that we see in the montage really set up this idea that after Ellie's death, Carl is thrust into these roles that he's never had to play that he's never Mm -hmm. had to embrace before Mm -hmm. he's never been the adventurous one 
and he's relied on his partner to fill that role in his life. And with her gone, he loses any sense of joy and adventure. And like you're saying, it at the end of that first act, when he goes up in the balloons, he is rediscovering those traits in himself. I think it is nice to shout out a little later in the movie where the house is floating and he is holding the house onto the ground. He is the tether for the house and how that reflects his relationship with Ellie, that she was the adventurer flying away and he was the one tethering her, but not in a restrictive way, just in a guided way. And that parallel, there are so many parallels in this movie And every time Carl looks at the house and Mm -hmm. sees his wife and his the memories of his life in that house and the importance to him of getting to that destination, that he has that singular goal in mind, you can tell how important it is. And you really empathize and love that character because he is doing it out of love. Yeah, This movie has a lot of symbols. It's very, very Mm symbol-heavy. But the house by far is just the most beautiful and resonant, and they do that so well. Yeah, let's talk about the house. The house, in so many ways, like you were saying, represents Carl's relationship with Ellie. Mm -hmm. They fix up this house, and they build this house as they are building their life together. And of course, the house starts even earlier, because that is where they meet also. Yes, and this house shelters them and protects them. And after Carl loses Ellie, it is his safe place. It is is where he can go and shut the world out. But of course, it also isolates him. Mm-hmm. And we see this kind of push and pull after Ellie dies of the house being something that both keeps him safe and also holds him back because, you know, it lifts him into the sky and it brings him on this new adventure. But it also becomes a burden because he has to literally carry it on his back and drag it through with him. And it it literally drags him and Russell down during chase scenes. And of course, there are multiple moments where Carl is fixating on the house more than he's fixating on the real living relationships in his life when he's, he's not paying attention to Russell or Kevin because he is too fixated on the house, which represents this memory of Ellie and the memory of the relationship he used to have. Mm -hmm. Most notably, Muntz, our villain bad guy, sets the house on fire and Carl tends to the house instead of protecting Kevin. And that is when Muntz steals Kevin. Kevin, the giant bluebird. Yes. (laughs) So there's, there's so much symbology around the house and... Carl not being able to let it go and and these memories and this grief ultimately holding him back. And also this pretty interesting commentary on the danger of becoming too fixated on symbols, becoming so fixated on these symbols that you're not recognizing what is actually happening in your life. And I think that that is is somewhat interesting because I, I think in the second act of the movie, especially the movie maybe relies too heavily on symbols And that's to the detriment of the emotional resonance. I agree with you. And I feel like we should now turn into this second act because we have gushed so much about the first act because it is truly 
absolutely incredible. But I think that that is where a lot of the memories that people have of this movie and a lot of the love for this movie, I think the first 20 minutes is where a lot of that lives. Because the rest of the movie, in my opinion, is fine. Yeah, and I think that a lot of people kind of feel that way about Up. Mm -hmm. So let's get into it. Why doesn't the rest of the movie necessarily live up to the first act? I can think of a few reasons to start. The first, again, just for the last time, the first bit is so precise and contained and magical that is just impossible to hold up over a 90-minute runtime. It's incredible that they did it for 20 minutes, but there's just not enough plot there. So of course there was going to be a little bit of a dip. The second for me is Doug the Talking Dog. This begins about grief and loss and love and memories, and then they land in Paradise Falls, and it turns into a talking dog movie. And Pixar are movies for kids, and I remember people really loving that part and loving the childhood aspects of it. And that's where a lot of the jokes are and the humor is. I understand why Pixar does that. Because you can't just have a movie, even as much as it seems like Pete Docter would like to, (laughs) about an old man if it's an animated movie for kids. So I understand why they had a talking dog in it. But it throws all of these themes right out the floating window. Yeah, it feels a little bit like someone saw an early draft of this from Pete Docter and was like, This is not for kids. You need to put in a talking animal. And we'll get to Soul later, but just as a bit of a spoiler. It does a similar thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Soul is a movie about death that turns into a talking animal movie just about the same time. Yeah. So I'm not coming in against talking animals. I did write a book about a talking animal. (laughs) I do. I like a good talking animal movie. I think that it's not that it couldn't have worked in this movie. But it does just feel so unrelated. That's a really good way to say it. And to me, the Russell plotline feels unrelated for much of the second act. It ties together at the end pretty well. But when Russell comes on screen, it feels distinct from what we've been watching up till that point. Yeah, Russell's really interesting because it feels like the relationship between Carl and Russell maybe would have had more significance if... Carl and Ellie wanting a kid was an even bigger thing. But that said, I'm really, really glad it wasn't. Mm -hmm. It's a really tragic moment in the montage. But I love that they are able to find a new dream and have a really fulfilling, great life together that doesn't revolve around needing to have a kid. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's interesting with Russell. I think that they handled Russell and integrating his plot well enough. I think it could have been a little bit better, maybe just a hair clearer about Russell's relationship with his dad and what Russell is needing. Maybe clearer when he talks about it and maybe a little bit earlier. That's what I was going to say, one beat earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would have done a lot. Yeah, so that we just have more time really understanding what Both Russell and Carl are getting out of this relationship. Exactly. It's great in the beginning to understand Russell's motivation as just wanting to get that badge. Mm -hmm. But as we go along, we do need a little bit more. And we get it eventually. But it could have come sooner. Especially as Russell is risking his life and traveling thousands of miles away with this old man. 
you know, suspension of disbelief. But it would have been nice if at some point immediately after they landed, Carl was like, Russell, buddy, why'd you, what are you doing? Like, why are you here? To get a badge? We're in South America now. Right. And of course, we don't want something so on the nose as Russell just saying, well, you know, my dad. Exactly. But just little hints sooner because this movie is so intentional about its callbacks and its symbols. And it it does seem like they could have paid a little bit more attention in this particular instance. Again, this is one tiny nitpick. Yeah, but back to the dogs. At least with Russell, it feels like there's this sense of loneliness and trying to find a family and make connection that Carl is also feeling. And Mm -hmm. you get that with Doug. He's kind of an outsider in his pack. But it's a bit of a stretch to really make parallels there. Mm -hmm. It's clear that that Doug is there for comic relief and his lines are really quite funny at certain points. But After the setup of the first act, you really expect something different from the movie. You expect it to continue to hit those emotional beats and really make you feel. And so when it has a character that's just so clearly there for comic relief and doesn't really have an emotional arc going on, Mm -hmm. it does feel a bit thrown in there. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I definitely appreciate the way that this movie needs a little bit of a tone shift and this transitions it in. And I actually think that by the end of the movie, these threads have all connected and we see some parallels between Carl's relationship with Ellie and Russell and Doug and we see parallels come together by the end. But Russell and Doug are both introduced as such a strong tone shift that it's disconcerting for a moment. Still wonderful, but a little disconcerting. I'm wondering what else in the second act you thought maybe didn't work quite as well, or at least didn't live up to the first act. I think that there's a pretty strong sense of the pacing being a bit off. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because the stakes are so high in the first act. Yeah. I mean, first of all, Ellie dies. This character that we've grown very attached to dies in the first 10 minutes. And then Carl hits someone on the head and has to go to court and loses his house and then flies up in his house. And this whole sequence of Carl and Russell flying through the sky in this house is terrifying. Oh, yeah. There's a full expectation that this could be a dream sequence and they could crash and everything could go terribly, terribly wrong. I'll also say about the stakes, we also see Carl going from being a child to being a very old man. So we understand that this movie is about his life in its entirety, and nothing is bigger stakes than life. The stakes of this movie are always going to be about the weight and importance of his life, and if his life was fulfilling and what he wanted it to be, and there are no bigger stakes than that. Yeah, I mean, you have the emotional stakes of Is this a life well lived? Exactly. And then you also have the literal stakes of life and death. They're so high up in the air. Yeah. There's even one one little segment where the movie shows Russell falling from the house. And it turns out that Carl's just imagining it. But it's pretty shocking to see. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) You you think that they're going to die like 15 different times Mm -hmm. in this 10-minute sequence probably even less than that in that in this five minute sequence 
of them flying the house. Mm-hmm. And then they land the house and the stakes just plummet. Yeah. <laughs> For the whole second half of the movie, their goal is to move the house what doesn't seem to be a very far distance. Yeah, a couple miles. So they're they're walking through South America, I guess, and they are chased by dogs, but that doesn't feel that bad <laughs> once, once they've almost fallen from the sky to their death. It's just, it's hard to invest once you've been up so high. Also, once they make it to the general vicinity of Paradise Falls, if the house ever fully stops before they get to the falls themselves, then they're still really close. And as the audience, you're like, you made it, man. Yeah, you can you see it. Yeah. It's close enough. You didn't get all the way, but like... Look at that view. Yeah, you don't need to be right next to it all the time. So yes, it doesn't... It feels like his journey is complete when the wind blows the fog away and he sees the falls right there. That's when you feel like, ah, you did it. You you got there. And then when the movie says, no, he needs to get right next to it, it makes you as the audience say, okay, but like... Does he really need to get right next to it? (laughs) Right. So the stakes plummet as Mm -hmm. the house descends. (laughs) Nice, yes. But actually, as I'm talking about it, I feel like the biggest reason that the second and third act don't work as well is because of the first act. The middle of the movie and the end of the movie don't exist in a vacuum. They are responses to what's been set up in the first act of the movie. I think that even though the first act is so perfect in so many ways, it doesn't necessarily do what it needs to do in order to set up the rest of the movie. The first act typically will set up a need and a want for the character, and those things are different. So... In a very basic example of a plot line, you would have a character who needs fundamentally the basic human need, like a character who needs to feel like they matter in the world. But because of some kind of trauma or the way that they were raised or some kind of negative value system that they have, they will attempt to fulfill this need in a warped way. So maybe this character needs to feel like they matter to the world, but because they were raised in an environment where the way to measure how much someone matters was with wealth or external achievements, they want to get this dream job because they believe subconsciously that that is what is going to fulfill this basic need. In a really well-structured story, the needs are really the full bookends of the story. You can see from the first scene what a character needs, and in the last scene, they will get what they need. But then the want is sandwiched inside of it. So typically you would see that in the second act. The second act is a lot of this character trying to achieve this want and failing or succeeding and realizing that it doesn't actually fulfill them. And then at the end of the second act, reevaluating and figuring out what they actually need to do in order to fulfill their need. So maybe the aforementioned character gets the job, but they are still unfulfilled for whatever reason. And they realize that what they thought they wanted isn't what they truly need to be happy or satisfied. Yeah, and usually the want and the need will directly conflict. So in Up specifically, what is the 
need and what is the want. So the want is very clear if you look at Act 2. He wants to get his house to Paradise Falls because he wants to fulfill Ellie's dream and he wants to carry out that life that they had together. Of course, he can't because Ellie is gone. He can't keep living that life that he had with her. And that's why we see even when the house makes it to Paradise Falls, he is still not fully happy. That's not the end of the movie. Yes. I think that a problem with this movie then is the need that is set up. So if we're thinking about need now, we can look to the very beginning of the movie. And that is where we see Carl as a young kid. And he's watching this documentary about Munz and he's wanting adventure. When he meets Ellie, she gives him that adventure. And they share that adventure for their entire lives together. Even if they never go to Paradise Falls, she gives him adventure and a happy life through that. Yes. And so it feels like when he loses her, he also loses the sense of adventure, which he needs. You know, this is kind of a tricky thing. Because if his need is adventure, then the movie can be over 22 minutes in. Mm -hmm. Because as soon as the balloons fly out and he gets on his way, he adjusts the picture of Ellie on his wall and he's steering his house through the sky. And we understand that Carl is back on his last greatest adventure. And he has fully what he needs, which makes the rest of the movie a little tricky because he doesn't understand that he is already fulfilled and satisfied if his true need is adventure. So he spends the rest of the movie trying to get his house right next to Paradise Falls because that's what he thinks he wants. But as the audience, it's hard to feel like those stakes are so high because we don't care if he gets what he wants because we know that he already has what he needs, which is that last greatest adventure. Right, and I think that's why you feel at the end of Act 2 when he doesn't get what he wants and that want arc closes, that the movie's basically done. Because now both his need arc and his want arc have ended. Yeah. It's unclear where else there is to go. Of course, there is somewhere else to go. And the movie does go there. So the movie ends. Its final scene is with Russell. And Carl is sitting with Russell and they're having this moment together, this meaningful everyday kind of moment. And in this scene, it's very clear that what Carl actually needs is connection and love. And that's something that we know because we we understand that about grief and, and love. And we see that Carl has lost Ellie. And so we understand that he needs connection with someone new. But the movie needs to make that change explicit when his need switches from needing adventure to needing companionship. And that is not a very clear shift. I would actually say that the movie really should plant the connection thing in the very first scene. Ooh. And I think that it really changes the way that we watch this movie and the way that we feel about the second half of the movie if we understand from the very first scene that, yes, Carl wants adventure, but what is underlying that is his desire for connection. If the want is adventure, but the need is connection and companionship. Yes. So how would the movie do that, though? It doesn't even really need to change that much. Just very subtle shifts would help us understand this. Because again, 
It's so intuitive. We watch the movie and we we see this happening. It's why the movie works regardless, because we understand that this is a viable need given his circumstances. Yes. So the movie would have to do very little in order to immediately set it up. I mean, we could even have when Carl is watching the movie in the theater, when he's watching this documentary, we could see it zoom out a little bit and... Carl is sitting there alone. The seats next to him are empty. But we see that all the other seats are filled with families watching together and connecting with each other. And then we see Carl, after the movie, running through the streets, playing by himself. And we could just see in the background other kids playing together. And we would understand that Carl is lonely. Carl is alone. When Ellie and Carl meet, you could have Ellie say something like, Every great adventurer needs a partner. Yeah, totally. There's just very little that the movie would have to do in order to imply this. But I think that what you're saying about this need for adventure feeling like a closed arc in the first act of the movie is really true. If we understood that what Carl really needed was a connection with someone else, then we would see that he is going on this adventure in the second act of the movie, but we're still invested emotionally. We're still waiting for him to fulfill his true need. Oh, yeah. And then we see Russell there, and we know, based on what the movie has explained to us, but also what we know intuitively, that Russell is Carl's way to make connection with someone. It's almost a meet cute. Yeah. And that keeps Russell from feeling kind of like he's just thrown in there. We really understand his role immediately. And look, the thing is that we already do. Like what I'm saying is that understanding that Carl needs connection with someone is just something we know based on what we know about grief and human psychology and what it means to live in this world. But I think it's really useful when when we're watching a movie to to really understand where this movie is going to take us. If if we see this need set up then we know subconsciously that the movie's going to end on the reverse. And of course, this movie's so good at reversals. And then the movie becomes about the journey. It's, it's not about the end, but it's about how we see the characters get there. We talked about Doug. We've talked about Russell. Kevin, the bird. I like Kevin as a character. I thought throughout the whole movie, because I didn't really remember anything except the montage, I I thought for sure that more was going to be made of Kevin trying to get to her babies and this idea of loss. I I thought that there was going to be this whole parallel with, with Kevin and with Carl. And I do realize thinking about the timeline of this, that it doesn't actually make sense. But in my head, I thought that the bird that our bad guy, Munz, killed was Kevin's partner. Ooh, deep. And that, you know, Kevin had also lost her soulmate, just like Carl had, and was trying to grieve and then get back to her family and take care of these children the same way that Carl is now taking care of Russell. That's a great headcanon. I it love it. It really was. And it's not the movie's fault that it didn't do that. But I just, I was waiting for it and then it didn't happen. And then I did think yeah, about it. Yeah, it's like it. 40 years later. Yeah. But, you know, 
I wanted something like that, I guess. That would have been really cool. I got to say, when you said you liked Kevin as a character, I don't think I registered that Kevin was a character. Yes. <laughs> like Kevin's just a non-talking bird. Okay, I liked Kevin. <laughs> I like Kevin too. He's colorful and likes chocolate and isn't to he. So Kevin's our only female character outside of the first 20 minutes. The only female character that doesn't die. Is that right? There's probably like a woman in the background somewhere. Yeah, I mean, like, there's Russell's mom who waves at the end of the movie. But she doesn't have any line of dialogue. But neither does Kevin. (laughs) Okay. Well, this was a very positive depiction of a relationship, so I will give it that. Carl and Ellie. Yes. Yeah, obviously. Although also, oh, now that I am thinking about it, the other good depiction of a relationship was Marlon and Marlon's wife, who did die also in the first 10 minutes. Oh, no. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. We still we like this movie. We like Ellie. Not going to get yeah. into that. Obviously, it's a little bit of sexism that there are no female talking characters in this movie who don't die. And barely any female characters at all. Did you feel like there were other bits of sexism, just to point out? Or any other things that you found problematic? Um, I don't want to have like a... What was problematic about this movie segment? There are little nitpicks. I wouldn't use the word problematic. I think that's too strong. I think it's an interesting thing that I always notice when a joke is that a masculine-looking character has a... An effeminate voice? Yes. Yeah. And and that's a joke with one of the dogs, that Mm -hmm. this this alpha dog has a really high-pitched female-sounding voice because its translator collar is broken. I think a lot of movies and TV shows do this. I think that that can be problematic for obvious reasons. Yeah. I think that for the most part, this movie was really good and and didn't raise any major flags for me. Anyway, that is the second act. It wasn't bad. It just, I think, for a number of reasons, didn't quite live up. Oh, also, just talking about the symbols and everything, I think the second act relies a lot on callbacks to symbols that have been set up in the first act and specifically in the montage yeah it it calls back the cloud watching when russell's looking at the rocks and saying oh this looks like a turtle this looks like a dog and it's it's specific because the first cloud that ellie sees is a turtle and the first rock that russell sees is a turtle there are lots of little callbacks like that which i think are fun but i think that maybe the movie relies a little bit too much on that in order to deliver emotional impact because the brilliance of those reversals and repeating different settings and actions in the montage is that each time it repeats something, it adds to it Mm -hmm. or it reverses it and changes it. But when they call back all of these symbols in the second act, they're really not changing anything. They're just reminding us of them. Yeah. And so it doesn't really land as well with the exception, I think of the house which is just such a strong metaphor throughout the whole movie. Yeah, for sure. Can I give you one more symbol that to me was the one that stood out the most? It's when just about at the halfway point, Russell is about to fall asleep and they are under the house, right? The house is keeping them dry. They're under Ellie's protection. And as Russell is falling asleep, he says to Carl, the dog wants to kidnap Kevin will you protect Kevin? And Carl says, yes. And Russell says, cross your heart, which is something that 
Ellie had always said to Carl. And that is a symbol that is from their childhood, but also extends all the way through the montage. To me, that was the first moment when Carl recognized his life with Ellie existing outside of her specifically. You're right. I forgot about that. And that is a really beautiful moment. Yeah. And also recognizing that he can care about someone that isn't Ellie. Mm-hmm. Because we don't see him do that in in the first half of the movie. And I think it's really significant for him to say that to Russell because he is kind of accepting a new family almost. There's an interesting shift for Carl over the course of the movie. When he takes off with the house, the house is the representation of Ellie. And getting the house to Paradise Falls is his number one goal. Not just to fulfill that dream, but also because that's the only way that he can be with her and feel connected to her. And so that Ellie can see the falls because that was always her dream. When he is caring about the house and prioritizing the house, it's not about the house. It's about his wife and his life, the memories that he has, and whether or not that was meaningful to him. Yeah. And that's all wrapped up in the house. And it feels like that's all he has left of her. Exactly. Because it is physically. Mm -hmm. When Russell makes him cross his heart, that is the first time that he recognizes that the spirit of Ellie exists outside of the house. But even after that is when he has to choose between Kevin and the house. In the moment you were talking Mm -hmm. about before when Munts lights a fire under the house. And he chooses the house. And I think it's important to say this because he chooses the house not because it's a house and wood and a structure and his belongings, but because that is his life and Mm -hmm. his goals and his hopes all wrapped up within that. And his memories. Exactly. We understand the importance he puts on the house, but now without that moment, without him crossing his heart, it's not a struggle for him because it is just a bird. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's, he's choosing between his past and his present slash future. Yeah. And without crossing his heart, he's choosing between his life and something exterior to him, something totally apart from him. Mm-hmm. And you need to create a connection between Carl and the outside in order for that to be a serious struggle for him. And he still chooses his own memories. But when he gets the house all the way there, and when the house settles, he then realizes that actually, maybe there's a way to understand that the spirit is more important. Yeah, he understands after he leaves that it was never the house. Mm -hmm. It was always her. And the house is just a symbol. And I I think it's such a, a lovely moment when he needs the house to lift off again because he needs to go back to save Kevin. But the balloons have started drifting away and the house is too heavy. Well, he needs to save Russell. Yes, both of them. But yes, Russell more. Um, he cares. Yes, he, Russell is a, is a is human child. Yes. <laughs> he realizes that the only way to do this is to shed all of the furniture in the house. Mm-hmm. And so he starts throwing it all out and it's such a strong metaphor. It's such. It's so solid of him shedding all of this baggage 
and all of the weight that was holding him back in his grief and in his focus on the wrong things. Of course, it's hard not to watch it now and think about how much he is just polluting this beautiful, untouched location. Like, there's definitely a Wally 100 years from now that's just, like, cleaning up the little <laughs> bits of that furniture. Oh, uh, for sure. That scene where he takes back off in the house actually ties in really nicely to what I thought the theme of the movie was, which is how do you honor people and remember people who have passed on? After the first 10 minutes, Carl recognizes a dream that he and Ellie had had together, and especially that Ellie had had. He goes about fulfilling this dream. He wants to figure out a way to honor her by making sure that she, in the form of the house, gets to see Paradise Falls and be there and end there. That that's the conclusion of her story, and that's something he can do to honor her. And his memories of her are so tied up in the house. But also in that, the way he honors her is with the specificity of what she was to him. Mm -hmm. It is about specifically this trip, specifically this adventure, this goal, this life together. Over the course of the movie, Carl sheds that understanding that in order to honor Ellie, he has to do things specifically in the way that she would have done it to understand that the way to honor her is to honor not the thing she wanted, but the life she led. And that it was about connection and he can connect with other people and with other explorers and adventurers and protect other people and care for other people in the way that he does for Russell. And to have an adventure of his own, not just to complete hers, but the way to truly honor her is to live your life as she would have wanted you to. Yeah. And I think that that is such a beautiful sentiment. And to me, that is what the movie is really saying. And I think it delivers that theme so well. But I believe for you, that's actually a little, it's a little different, right? I mean, I think that that theme was certainly there, and I think it, it was beautiful, as you said. I think there's also the theme of the real adventure was the friends we made along the way. Oh, so <laughs> deep and beautiful. Is that, did you come up with that on by yourself? Yeah, yeah, it's not a meme at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but this idea of how so many times we have a perfect life in our head, and the ultimate destination, and the thing that we have to achieve or accomplish or see in our lifetime. But while we are dreaming of this and planning for this, our life is happening. Yeah. We see this when Carl is looking back at that book. And, and this happens at that scene that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So I, I also agree that that is an emotional climax. Carl looks at this book and realizes that Ellie has filled it, has filled her list of things that she's going to do with pictures of them together. Mm -hmm. Carl in his head had this idea that he never really gave Ellie her dream life and the thing that she really wanted. But of course he did because she just wanted a life with him. That's so sweet. It's so sweet. Oh, this movie kills me. <laughs> but I think that the thing that the third act then delivers is this understanding that Carl can move forward, that he understands in this moment, at the end of the second act, how to honor Ellie 
and also the real goal of his life. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the movie, we see him with Russell and we see him caring for Russell and giving Russell his wilderness explorer badge and sitting on the curb eating ice cream with Russell, which Russell has said that his dad used to do with him. So we see Carl caring for someone new and Mm -hmm. finding love in a new way. There is something so literal in this movie about life being the journey, not the destination. The themes of this movie are so beautiful and so tightly wound. We haven't said the good man's name yet. Pete. (laughs) But we just, man, Pete Doctor is so good at this. He is. He does not like making movies for kids. He has very little interest in children, apparently. <laughs> he's just like, he's like one one trick for turning his movie that he wants to make into a kid's movie is just like, fine, I'll put in a talking animal. <laughs> yeah, Pete Doctor just wants to make a movie about like being old and losing the people that you love. Yeah. And Disney's like, put a talking dog in. Yeah, at least that's what we believe. Who knows? Yeah. Imagine this world that we love Pete Doctor so much. And imagine if he was the one who just loved talking animals. And it turns out that the people he's working with really understand stories. <laughs> he's but just, he's the talking animal guy. Oh, he like I love it. He came in and was like, I want to make a movie about Doug. And they were like, like everyone else is like, you know, what about all this other stuff? <laughs> yeah. What if we can like shoehorn this into, into Doctor's dog movie? <laughs> Pete Doctor's like, fine, I'll do a montage, but I'm not really into this. <laughs> Oh, the man's so good. I also think that one more theme-related thing about the movie is that at one point towards the end of the second act, Russell tells Carl about his dad and about his memories with his dad, Mm. specifically sitting on the curb eating ice cream. And he tells Carl, this might sound boring, but the boring things are the things I remember most. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is really true for the movie itself. And I think that that movie really, really delivers on this theme and demonstrates this theme in a way that is sometimes detrimental to the entertainment value. Yeah. Because we have all these big chase scenes and this talking dog and and this whole like epic kind of adventure story. But that is the part that ultimately people forget about. And when people think about Up, they think about this montage, they think about Ellie and Carl, they think about Russell, they think about the small moments. And I I believe that what the movie is saying when it says the boring moments are the things I remember most is that, of course, these aren't the boring moments. These are the moments. These are the moments Mm -hmm. that make up a life and the moments that we connect to. And it really is a beautiful movie. And the heart of this movie is so beautiful. Love it. So good. So good. (laughs) I think that's it. And I think that's the end of our Up podcast. Um, I will say that I am proud of you because I thought for sure that you were going to comment on the logistics of this balloon house. Oh, I am still planning on commenting on the (laughs) logistics. I didn't think this was the area we need to end on, but I'm happy ending here. I'm going to zig. I'm going to zag, I guess. Zag away. This is plausible. Wow. I was thinking, as you were rewatching the montage, I was thinking about how this couldn't be done and how 
it changes the stakes of the movies because it couldn't be done. And I want to talk about that a little bit because I think that point still stands. But some wonderful people on the internet figured out about how much this house would weigh and how much helium you would need in order to lift the house. And you'd need thousands of balloons, and the balloons would be a little bigger than the ones that Carl's using, and he'd need slightly more of them. But on principle, just about this many balloons and balloons of this size could levitate a house about that big. It'd be much harder to steer, and of course it wouldn't go very quickly. It would be nearly impossible to fly it from the U.S. to South America. So that aside, that doesn't matter. But I do think it would be possible to get enough helium. It would, according to the internet, be about $12 million worth of helium. So if money's been a problem this whole time, that probably doesn't work. Anyway, that's an aside. The reason that I think it's interesting, though, is because even if, according to the internet, it's not totally implausible, it is obviously totally implausible because no one is doing this. No one is levitating a house with balloons. And that puts up totally into a fantasy world. Mm -hmm. And everything about the movie is in this fantasy lens because they've started from that point. And they've moved from the reality of the first 20 minutes to absolute fantasy. It's a really artful way of suspending disbelief. They also plant the balloon thing right from the beginning in the montage when we see that Carl owns a balloon cart. And every time he takes his hand off of the cart, the cart lifts into the air. So we're already primed for accepting the idea of balloons lifting something. Yeah, but it doesn't matter if it's possible or not, because as soon as it happens, it feels like the whole movie escapes the realm of possibility and moves totally into a pure adventure. To me, this is in a stark distinction with something like Wally, where Wally wants to be fully grounded in the world, fully grounded in pollution, in the climate crisis, in robotics, right? You know, a robot loses a tire tread and needs to replace it. Uh, there are memory cards, there are, you know, there's science in it. And when the science is off, you notice the science is off because the science is supposed to matter. So regardless if balloons could actually lift a house off the ground, as soon as the balloons do, you understand that this is a world where anything can happen. And when the dogs start talking, that's fine. When Kevin is hopping all over the place, that's fine. When the house seems to float and then unfloat and then float and then unfloat, and have way more balloons than are actually up there pop over the course of the movie, that's totally fine because you're in this fantasy world. And it's just another way that this movie really understands how to put its audience in a place that makes them willing to fully engage with the movie. Often movies with really serious messages can get lost in the minutia, in the plot. And just the balloons all popping out that one scene where the balloons fly out from the house and the house lifts off from the ground is Pixar telling the audience, don't worry about the minutia. Focus on the themes and the meaning. Because the minutia, that's not worth getting too critical over. And that's why I think we haven't. We've really stuck to what the themes are about because that is what this movie is really about. And it is thoughtful about those themes. And it is thoughtful about putting the audience in a position to really understand these themes. So 
Can the house fly? Maybe yes, but really, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Because the real story is what's happening in our hearts, not our heads. Classic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Next time on Movie Culture. We're watching Toy Story 3. Well, thank you for joining us. Please follow us on your favorite podcast app. And as always. Goodbye. Goodbye.